Please take your Bible and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Once you find that, you might also mark Hebrews chapter 12. And let me express my gratitude for the opportunity to be here. And uh, the opportunity for the conference yesterday. Invitation from pastor and the hospitality from Pastor Derek and from uh, Pastor Micah, who did most of the logistical work in getting me here uh, for this. I'm, uh, I am grateful. Uh, I've been here actually several times before, uh, uh, at least two or three times in the 90s, uh, but it's uh, been a while, and, uh, it, but it, it's, it's good to be back. I'm also grateful for... Um, the opportunity that this provided us to be with some very good friends. The church paid for my wife, Kathy, here in the middle of the second row to come. And because we wanted to do that to stay with very dear friends, I was their pastor going back to like 1986 in the Chicago area. And uh, the Contes have been very dear friends living in the Northland, and this enabled us to spend some time with them as well. So we're grateful for that added blessing. And I'll mention one other blessing and request your prayers for me in this time. Many of you already knew. Pastor introduced me yesterday in this way. I was in the hospital in uh, November, December for about three and a half weeks. And uh, some pretty serious stuff. And uh, six weeks ago today, uh, they were two nurses were standing by my bed hanging a, a, a bag of something called TPN, some specialized nourishment because I hadn't eaten, been able to eat, hold anything down two and a half weeks. And um, I said, I can't feel my arm. And they immediately went into a stroke protocol and ran me down the hall. And while they were running through some scans and so forth, they discovered that the, the line in which this IV was inserted had been mistakenly inserted into my aorta. And had they been successful in turning it on and they had their hands on the bag, that's what they were doing. They were seconds from turning on this liquid nourishment uh, would have killed me. And uh, Pastor Derek would be preaching now. Um, but so God providentially used the timing of a stroke to save my life. I'm about 95% recovered from that stroke. They told me to expect a full recovery, but um, there's still a lot of lingering effects from all that whole time. Then last week I had COVID. Uh, Kathy and I both had COVID. So I've not been 100% while I'm here, but you guys have done all that could be possibly expected to help me uh, have as much strength as possible to speak. And so I think there's two verses right now. One where Paul said, in my weakness, he is strong. And second, where Paul said, I'm willing to spend and be spent for your souls. And I'm willing to do that this morning, give you all that I have left by God's grace. And I trust that by his spirit, he can do what no strength, human strength can do, no education can do, no eloquence can do, no experience can do, because what we seek this morning is not by might, not by power, but by God's Spirit. So you pray for God's Spirit to do what I could not do if I were in full and complete health and, and 100% capacity. So I want to begin by asking you to imagine uh, that you are praying and as you are praying, suddenly, unexpectedly, an angel appears to you. And let me address the guys first of all. This angel says to you, God is giving you a, a miraculous 
new ability to throw a new kind of pitch with a baseball. It's going to move and dance something like a knuckleball, but it's going to be so unhittable that this October you will open the World Series in the K pitching for the Royals. But you must practice an hour every day. Or for you ladies, the angel says God is giving you a miraculous singing voice, and it's going to be unlike anything the world has ever heard. And it's going to so take the world by storm that you will open the World Series at Kauffman Stadium this October singing the national anthem. But you must practice an hour every day. Poof, the angel is gone. Well, guys, you immediately go outside. You begin throwing the baseball against the side of the house hour after hour. That's all you want to do because God told you to do it. Are you ladies singing the national anthem hour after hour? God told you to do it. And you're going to be in the World Series. A couple of weeks go by. Life is busy. But nevertheless, God told you to do it. You're going to be in the World Series. No problem. But another couple of weeks go by. Things are starting to pile up now. It's getting tougher and tougher, but after all, God told you to do this, so you practice an hour every day. Another couple of weeks go by, you're really behind now, and you can hardly make yourself practice an hour every day. Yes, yes, God told you to do it, but God's given you lots of other things to do as well. You know what you need to remember when that happens, and it will? What you're going to become. You're going to be in the World Series for crying out loud. When you can remember that, <laughs> discipline is no drudgery. But any discipline, no matter how it begins, any discipline without direction is drudgery. Even preparing for the World Series. Even the spiritual disciplines of the Christian life. Prayer can threaten to become mere drudgery, just saying the same old things about the same old things as we talked about yesterday, and that's boring. Reading the Bible can be just another thing to do, another box to check on an already overloaded, over-busy life. And any other spiritual practice can be just another thing to do that you feel guilty if you don't do, but you do because you believe God wants you to do it, and that's about the only reason you do it is drudgery. You know what you need to remember when that happens, and it will? What you're going to become. For the Bible says of God's elect in Romans 8, 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers, many made like him. And whom he predestined these, he also called. These whom he called, these he also justified. These whom he justified, these he also glorified. Made like Christ forever and ever. God is predestined that all those in Christ are going to be made like Jesus Christ. Not like him in his divinity, like the Mormons believe. We're not going to be little gods as the Mormons believe. Rather, we will be like Jesus in his sinless, perfect humanity reflecting the glory of God from every cell and pore of our bodies forever and ever. And that is no angelic promise. That's the word of God. That's you, brother, sister in Christ, in a few years. Well, then, if God has predestined that, why talk about discipline at all? Why not just coast on into glory and enjoy the ride? Well, because of that little verse tucked away in Hebrews chapter 12 I mentioned to you, 
which says pursue. Some translations say strive for, pursue peace with all men and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Pursue, very active, sweaty kind of word there. Pursue holiness. Strive for it because without it, who will see the Lord? No one. What if they go to church every Sunday? What if they give great sums of money to the kingdom of God? What if they serve sacrificially for the kingdom of God? They just don't pursue holiness. The Bible says they won't see the Lord. You know why? They don't know the Lord. Those who know the Lord are given the Holy Spirit, who's not a force, but a person, third person of the triune Godhead. And as we mentioned yesterday, that means the Holy Spirit dwells on you. Two people live in your body. If you're an expectant mom here, three people live in your body. And that other person is not passive. Just as an expectant mom has that day where she realizes something's going on, something's different. And she realizes, oh, there's another person living in here. And eventually everyone knows there's another person living in her body. So when the person of the Holy Spirit indwells any flesh and blood creature, there's evidence. There's fruit of that. You know, eventually, everyone knows. Because wherever the Holy Spirit goes, he brings his holy nature with him. As I mentioned yesterday, when you walked in the doors, you didn't pause and say, which nature will I bring in with me today? Uh, How about my alligator nature? No, you didn't make that decision because you don't have an alligator nature. You have only a human nature. And you bring your human nature with you wherever you go. Wherever the Holy Spirit goes, he brings his holy nature with him. And thus, when he indwells any flesh and blood creature, he affects you. There's evidence of that. You have holy hungers, for example. You didn't have before. You hunger for the holy word of God. You used to find boring or irrelevant. You hunger for fellowship with God's people, not mere socializing, That's talking about news, weather, sports, work, family, politics. And that's good, healthy, and normal. The godliest Christians do a lot of socializing, but that's not fellowship. So that's why I often avoid the word fellowship because when I say the word, I think the picture that we have is a picture of socializing. I prefer to use a Greek word that many of you know already, koinonia. That's the word translated fellowship because that has to do with talking about God. And the things of God. And the Holy Spirit gives you an appetite for that. I contend we do much less of it than we think, even at church. I mean, just reflect on the conversations you've had since you set foot on this campus this morning. How many of them had anything to do with God and the things of God? So that's why I think even something like Koinonia has to be a discipline. There's an intentionality about it that that fosters this this affinity the Holy Spirit gives us. In other words, we have a hunger, an appetite for Koinonia, but we can't just be passive about it. We have to be actively disciplining ourselves to pursue it. Just like the passage says. Pursue holiness. Be intentional about that. 
The Holy Spirit will give you the desire for it, a hunger for God's word, a hunger for fellowship with God's people. You, you really do enjoy talking about God and the things of God. What does this verse mean? How does it apply to my life? I love to hear answers of prayer. I love to hear opportunities people had to share the gospel. I love to hear of, of, of remarkable providences. I love to hear the work of God. I love to hear and talk about the things of God. Holy Spirit gives you that desire. He gives you, a, he gives you new holy longings you didn't have before the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You long to live in a body without sin anymore. You long to live in a mind that's no longer attracted to sin and temptation ever again. You long by the Holy Spirit to live in a holy and perfect world where there's no more racism, there's no more terrorism, there's no more traffic jams, there's no more COVID. And you long to live in that holy and perfect world with holy and perfect people. What Jonathan Edwards called a world of love. And you long at last and most of all to see face to face the one the angels call holy, holy, holy. And those holy hungers, those holy heartbeats, that, the holy aspirations, those are present in all those in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. We don't choose these things he causes us, like in Romans and Galatians. It says he causes us to cry out, Abba, Father. You have this new fatherward orientation, heavenward orientation, holy orientation when you're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. So that's how you know. Despite of all, all our failures, despite the awareness we have that we still have a desire for sin and temptation, nevertheless, we also desire holiness and God desperately, and we know that's not of us. And that's one of the things by which we assure ourselves that the Holy Spirit is within us. We are born again. Holy Spirit grounded hungers, appetites, affinities. You love the holy things of God. Despite your intentional sin, when that happens. And so, that's why the verse says, if you're not pursuing holiness, you will not see the Lord. It's because you don't know him anyway. You don't know him in the first place. See, it's not our pursuit of holiness that impresses God and says, well, my goodness, look how hard you're trying to reach me. I'm going to let you into heaven and throw open the door. No, no. The only holiness he's impressed with is that of Jesus. But if you know Jesus, he gives you the Holy Spirit, and so you are, you are leaning into, you're pursuing holiness. That is characteristic of your life. You may not be going as fast as you'd like to go, and it doesn't say the speed you have to go, but it does say the direction your life is going. There's an orientation toward holiness in all those going to a holy world and to see a holy God. And it says, if you're not pursuing that, if that's not characteristic of your life, you're not going to see the Lord. You don't know him anyway. Well, then that raises the big question I want to answer in this sermon. How do we pursue the holiness without which no one will see the Lord? The answer is in that verse I ask you to look at, 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 7. How do we pursue the holiness or godliness or Christ-likeness? Without which pursuit we will not see the Lord. <clears throat> the answer is in the second part of that verse. Train yourself for godliness. Our translation, I prefer here the New American Standard Translation. 
discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Three parts to that verse. Let me draw them in the air. I think that will help. So the purpose is godliness, Christ-likeness, holiness. If you have the Holy Spirit, that's your purpose. He makes that your purpose. You don't just decide it. The presence of the Holy Spirit gives you a, holiness, a, a hunger, an appetite, a desire for holiness, for godliness. Godliness is your purpose. How do you pursue it? Discipline yourself. Train yourself. Train yourself. Discipline yourself for a purpose. Purpose. What's the purpose? Godliness. Christ-like. Our job in the spirit-filled pursuit of godliness is to discipline ourselves. And so I want to talk in time that remains nearly all of it. In fact, it's very possible all of it be, what are these spiritual disciplines? What do we mean when we talk about the spiritual disciplines without which no one will see the Lord? So I'm going to characterize them for you in six ways. We're talking about mainly here, what are these things called the spiritual disciplines? We, we know it's not referring to bodily discipline here, mainly because the very next verse says, for bodily discipline is only of little profit having to do with this world. In other words, bodily exercise, it can help extend your life maybe, better quality of life, but it ends when you die. So it's only of little profit, unlike Spiritual disciplines, which promote holiness, which is a blessing forever. So when it says discipline yourself, we know it's not talking about bodily discipline. We also know just from practical experience, if that were so, bodybuilders would be the godliest people on the planet. Right? So when it tells us to discipline ourselves to the purpose of godliness, it's telling us to practice spiritual discipline. And the practical, biblical ways by which we do that, well... Historically, we've called those things the spiritual disciplines, spiritual exercises, spiritual practices, things that if you do them and you do them rightly, rightly motivated, they make you more like Jesus. They make you more godly. And they're also the means by which we experience God. That's very important. You want to experience God? The things of God to be real in your experience, that will happen by means of the spiritual disciplines. See, things we're talking about. So what are they? What are the spiritual disciplines? First of all, we characterize them as both personal spiritual disciplines and interpersonal spiritual disciplines. There are things you do alone. There are things you do with other Christians, like you're doing right now. This is an important emphasis because today, whenever we talk about spirituality, I think almost everyone's mindset reverts to the personal, those things you do all by yourself. Spirituality is a big topic today. Everybody is spiritual today, right? I mean, just try to find anybody who will say to you, you know, I'm, I'm just not very spiritual. I'm not a spiritual person. Everybody's spiritual. I have a survey from the front of the USA Today where a majority of atheists say they are spiritual people. Everybody's spiritual. But when we talk about spirituality, what comes into our minds are those things we do all alone, right? It's a personalized 
spirituality always. You have your spirituality, good for you. I have mine. Mine works for me. Yours works for you. You do what works for you. I'll do what works for me. You keep your spirituality to yourself. I'll keep mine to myself. Thank you very much. And so I want to emphasize, yes, the Bible is big on those personal spiritual disciplines. But I want you to realize equally important, at least, are the interpersonal spiritual disciplines. Congregational, corporate spiritual disciplines, those we do with other Christians that help us experience God and grow in grace. Did you know that every picture of heaven we have in the book of Revelation is congregational? There's not one image given to us of what heaven's going to be like that shows us alone. Will we ever be alone with God in heaven? Maybe. I don't know. The Bible doesn't say that. Never shows that. Instead, it's always interpersonal. And Jesus talks about he's building his church and talks about us as the body of Christ. So it's very, very important when we think of New Testament Christianity, of Christ-likeness, we must give high priority to those things we do together, the interpersonal spiritual disciplines. What am I talking about? When you read the Bible by yourself, that's a personal spiritual discipline. When you hear it preached or taught or read with the church, that's an interpersonal spiritual discipline. Jesus said, when you pray, Matthew 6, when you pray, go into your inner room, close the door. Your Father who sees in secret will hear you. But the New Testament also tells us to pray with the church. We're to worship God privately, but that's a personal spiritual discipline. We're also to worship with the church. Some of the spiritual disciplines found in the Bible by nature are private. Silence and solitude by definition. If you keep a spiritual journal, you do that all by yourself. But some of the disciplines found in the Bible are congregational, interpersonal by nature. Where I mentioned koinonia, you can't fellowship by yourself. It requires people, and we're to do that. Just as we're also, do this in remembrance of me, Jesus said about the Lord's Supper. That's a practice we are to obey, we're to engage in, but it's given to the church, not individuals. We're not to serve the Lord's Supper to ourselves in our private devotional time. That's given to the church, and we should experience that with and under the authority of the local church. By nature, that's a discipline that's interpersonal. And we all need both. All of us need both. Even though, let's recognize this about ourselves, God made us all to incline a little more one way or the other. God made us that way, but no matter which way he made us, we all need both. Some of us like to be alone. We get more out of our personal devotional time than we do often at church. You're the kind of person that says, man, I could take my personal spiritual disciplines and just go off and be an evangelical monk, an evangelical nun. I don't need that ungodly half-committed bunch down at the church. They only slow me down anyway. And in fact, the last two years have been the best two years of my life. I wish they'd make social distancing permanent everywhere. But other people say, man, I do not like to be alone. In fact, I'm energized more by being around people. And, uh, it, it, I, you know, I love being with the church, and I profit greatly from that. The, the danger on this side 
The danger over here is individualism, unbalanced individualism, isolationism over here. The danger is, you know, if I'm at the church every time the doors are open, and I am, and if I profit from that, as I do, I'm sure at the end of it all, that commitment will, comp will, will compensate for the lack of a personal devotional life. No, it won't. We all need both, even though each of us inclines a little more one way or the other. So just recognize which one you prefer, but realize the weakness in that and the necessity for you to apply yourself all the more the other way. So we all need both because the Bible teaches both. And second, Jesus practiced both. And he's our example of walking with God, isn't he? Just as kind of a, a timeout on the side, be careful whenever anyone talks about Jesus as our example. He is our example, but he's much more than our example. I read a book this summer given to me, a bestseller, written by a supposedly evangelical pastor, and over and over and over, he kept saying very explicitly, we're to follow the example of Jesus, and this is how we're made right with God. That's salvation by works, folks. Yes, the Bible does say we are to follow in his steps. Peter tells us that. We are to follow the example of Jesus. And he is our example, but he's much more than our example. He's our Lord, our Savior, our King, our friend, our judge, our substitute, and so much more. So whenever someone talks about Jesus as our example, just, just make sure they're not implying he's just our example. So Jesus is our example. He's more than that, but he's not less than that. And as our example, Jesus, five times the Gospels tell us, got alone with God. If he needed that, we need that. But Dr. Luke tells us in chapter 4 of his Gospel, as his custom was, he was in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now, wouldn't you think if anyone ever had a pass in going to church, it would be Jesus? He's got all these people to heal, this messianic ministry to fulfill, all this teaching to do. He knew he had a short time to do it. And yet, once a week, he would pull aside from all that and sit and listen to some dusty old rabbi preach what must have been to him a boring sermon. I think only a preacher can fully appreciate what I say when I say Jesus must have often sat there thinking, boy, I could do better than that. But he was there. Why was he there? Because it was the appointed time for the people of God to gather. And Jesus said, those are my people. When it is the appointed time for the people of God to gather, I'm going to be there because they are my people. So what am I saying? There are biblical disciplines you practice alone. There are some with other people we are inclined one way or the other, but we all need both because the Bible teaches both and Jesus practiced both. So when we think of New Testament Christianity, make sure you include the interpersonal spiritual disciplines. Second way we characterize them is that these are activities, not attitudes. A spiritual discipline is an activity. It's something you do. Now, you can do it rightly or you can do it wrongly. 
You can do it with the right motivation or the wrong motivation. It's something you do nevertheless. It's not something, well, we're back to that distinction between doing and being. Spiritual disciplines are something you do. And anybody can do them. An unconverted Pharisee can do them. But we do them nonetheless. They're activities, not attitudes. In other words, we don't talk about a spiritual discipline of peace. Spiritualism of joy. That is the fruit, the godliness, that's the fruit of a discipline done rightly. Okay? They're activities. Things you do. Godliness is, involves something that we do. He's given us something to do. Discipline yourself. Remember, that's a command. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. I want you to do it the right way. I want you to do it with right motivation. But it's something we do anyway. Godliness, we don't just passively wait for God to zap us with godliness. This is important because I, I have a lot of people today who are fearful of anything that smacks of commands or obedience or activities for fear of legalism. Legalism is a real threat. The Bible warns of that when we put too much emphasis on the value of our activities, especially as it relates to knowing God. That's a real threat. The Bible warns of that. But frankly, today, for every legalist I encounter, I come across 99 antinomians. Use a theological term. Those who say, you know, it all works out at the end. It's all by grace. It's covered by grace. Folks, any command we have in the Bible, it must be possible to obey it without legalism. Right? The Bible condemns, condemns legalism. It gives us a lot of commands. So there must be a way to obey a command like this one without legalism. The Bible says discipline yourself. And it means you, you discipline yourself. God doesn't discipline you for the purpose of godliness. He doesn't kind of float you over to the desk and then make you start reading the Bible. It feels like all of you. So these are activities. These disciplines are. They're, they're things you do. You generally know when you start and when you stop them. You say, well, I started reading my Bible at 9.05 and I stopped reading my Bible at 9.35. You can generally measure a spiritual discipline in one way or another because they're an activity. We don't want to do them like the Pharisees. We'll talk about that, but they are activities. Third, the spiritual disciplines that I want to refer to are those found in the Bible. Let's limit our list to biblical spiritual disciplines. If we don't, we're putting ourselves in charge of our spiritual lives. The temptation is for some people to say like, well, you know, exercise is like a spiritual discipline for me. It's just good for my habits. You know, it just makes me feel better about everything and it kind of helps me with all my other spiritual disciplines. So exercise is like a spiritual discipline. Or someone can say, you know, gardening is like a spiritual discipline for me. When I'm working in the garden, I feel closer to God. I feel close to God's creation. I feel like I'm a co-worker with God in that sense. Well, that's the way gardening ought to be, I guess. But if we decide what our spiritual disciplines are, that's putting us in charge of our spiritual growth and our spiritual life, not God. And what disciplines are we going to choose? Only the ones we like already anyway, right? And who's going to choose fasting? So I, I believe we should be 
have some biblical case for any discipline that we're talking about by command or by example. But if we don't have a limit to the Bible, it's easy for people to say, well, you know, maybe, maybe meditation on Scripture works for you, but, you know, gardening kind of does that for me. No, no. We want to submit to the disciplines found in Scripture because, fourth, the characteristic we have is the ones in the Scriptures are sufficient. The ones in the Bible are sufficient. Every spiritual practice you need to experience God to the full is found in the Bible. Every spiritual practice you need to become as Christ-like as humanly possible is found in the Bible. Did you know the Bible actually claims this for itself? It claims sufficiency for spirituality. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it says, All Scripture is inspired by God, God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the, the man or woman of God may be how well equipped? Fully, thoroughly equipped for how many good works? Every good work, including the good work of becoming like Jesus. So repeatedly there, the Bible says it is sufficient for godliness and for experiencing God. And that probably doesn't sound very controversial to many people. But I want to bring up to the spotlight next to that the fact that our culture today is filled with, with spiritual practices professing Christians may unwittingly engage in because they seem to experience some profit from it. Maybe it's from another religion. Maybe it's from an exercise program. Maybe it's, it's from some new agey kind of thing. Maybe they don't know where it comes from, but they say, you know, I really experience peace when I do that. Beware. Beware of that. The Bible claims sufficiency. And at the very least, we can say to all those other practices, they aren't necessary. Let me highlight one, for example. It's several thousand years old, the practice of labyrinth walking. Labyrinth walking, spelled L-A-B-Y-R-I-N-T-H, labyrinth walking. A labyrinth is, if, from the air, it looks kind of like a maze. Okay, if you go to a placemat, if you go to a restaurant, they have paper placemats for the kids to color on while you're waiting. Usually there's a maze there, right? It's a circle. And you come in the outside of the circle and you try to get to the center of the circle. You go back and forth, but they try to block you. Well, from the air, a labyrinth looks a lot like that, except that they don't block you. They want you to get to the center and take as long as possible to get there. Because you, the, the idea is you walk slowly, prayerfully, meditatively. And they're, they're quite often, oh, about the size of this, this platform here in diameter. When I was in the hospital last month, right outside my window, I've got a picture on my phone, a labyrinth. They're springing up everywhere. There's a church across the river from us in, in Louisville that uh, two years ago, they Church built a labyrinth, and they had an article in the paper about it, and the headline said they invite people of all faiths and no faith to come experience the benefits of a labyrinth. 
Folks, any spiritual practice that benefits people of all faiths and no faith is not Christian. But you have so many testimonies of people saying they, they benefited from that. Now, is there anything wrong with walking slowly, meditatively in, in this particular pattern in prayer? No, no, any more than there's anything wrong with walking in a straight line and praying, which is the way I often like to do. I like to walk when I pray. Doesn't matter a whole lot if I'm walking in a straight line or walking slowly, meditatively, back and forth in a compact space. The problem is believing there's something special about that method and it gives you some benefit that's not in the Bible. So what do we say then to someone like the famous economist, Jane Bryant Quinn? I have a two-page photographic spread of her standing on the labyrinth in her backyard that she had built overlooking the Potomac and her saying, walking the labyrinth was the only thing that got me through the grief of the death of my adult son. What do we as Christians say to her about that? Well, here's what you don't say. No, it didn't. He's going to come back in one way or another by saying, my experience trumps your argument. Don't tell me I didn't benefit from that. But what we can say to her is it isn't necessary to successfully deal with grief. You know why? It's not in here. Every spiritual practice we need to experience God to the full, to become as Christ-like as possible, is found in the pages of Scripture. And if there were some other practice that benefited us better than those in here, it would be in here. And so what do we say even to a Christian who says, well, I've done some of these things and found benefit from them, frankly, more than I get out of reading the Bible and praying? Either you're not converted, my friend, or you're doing it wrong. Either you're not indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and that's, not why you're, and that's why you're not experiencing the power of these things, or you're doing it wrong, as we spent yesterday morning talking about. A lot of people pray, and they say, when I pray, basically I say the same old things about the same old things, and that's, yes, thank you for those who were here yesterday. And when prayer is boring, you don't feel like praying. You don't feel like praying, you tend not to pray. You don't get anything out of it. And you may be thoroughly born again. It's your method. You say the same old things about the same old things every time you pray, you're probably not going to get a lot out of that quite often. You're doing it wrong. We talked about simply praying through a passage of the Bible, how anybody can do it. You don't need to remember anything. Just open your Bible, talk to God about what you see in the text there. And that is more satisfying, and that, that is a more biblical way to pray. And people even yesterday before they left the building talked about they, their prayer lives were permanently transformed by that. They just didn't know how to do that. So if, if biblical practices aren't helping you, as I said, either there's something wrong with you and your relationship with God or you're not practicing them correctly. And that's one of the, one of the reasons why the church exists is to help people learn how to practice the things in the Bible. So that's not a put down. You can't expect people to do what they've never been taught to do. So my point is the Bible claims sufficiency for experiencing God to the full, for growing in grace. If you're not experiencing that, then, then talk to the leadership of your church. Well, my time is about gone, and I'm not even through the first point. But I, I will quickly get into what the second one would have been, that these disciplines 
are the means to godliness. It's very important to emphasize that they're not ends. Remember what we drew in the air? Discipline yourself. Practice these disciplines, okay? For the purpose. There's a purpose you do it. Oh, what is it? Godliness. To experience God. To grow in godliness. So it doesn't say discipline yourself, period, and get good at it. That was the mistake of the Pharisees. They thought the disciplines were ends, not means to something else. They thought if they got really good at practicing those disciplines and did them with great consistency, God would be impressed and let them into heaven. So that's why the Pharisee prayed, remember, Lord, I think I'm not as other men. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. Check, 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 check. Therefore, I'm godly. And Jesus said, no, you're the epitome of ungodliness. Now, he affirmed their practice of the disciplines. In another place, he said, these things you ought to have done, these disciplines, without neglecting the weightier matters, like justice and mercy. They thought that just doing the disciplines was it. And they missed the fact that they were means to godliness, to Christ-likeness. So what we're not talking about, boy, just really get committed to these disciplines. You will do them consistently, do them a lot. You'll be a godly person. Not necessarily. We want to do them with the right motivation and with the right end in mind. So, but, so how do they fit together? I want to point you to one verse as I finish here, Colossians 1.29. The very last verse in Colossians chapter 1. So how, how does this all fit together then? What's my part? What's God's part in this? So clearly seen in Colossians 1.29. This was so helpful to me. Paul is talking in verse 28 about the ministry he has in making people mature in Christ. For this, he says in verse 29, I toil, comma. All right, thus far, who is toiling? Paul, for this, this ministry, I toil. Paul is the one who went to bed tired at night, not God. For this, I toil, comma, striving according to his power, which works mightily within me. So when Paul went to bed at night, he was the one who was tired. He was the one who said, man, Lord, those, those words hurt today. Those stones hurt today. And he thought to himself, am I going to get up and do this again tomorrow? You bet I am. Where did that come from? All glory to God. Right? I toil. I'm doing the work, but I do it because of his power, which works mightily within me. God gave Paul the desire and the power, but Paul had to get out of bed. How does all this work together? The classic example happened to you just a few hours ago. The alarm went off, and maybe your first thought was, I don't feel like going today. But what distinguished you from your neighbors? What made you willing to throw off the covers, fight the inertia, go against what your flesh wanted, and go to the bathroom and start getting ready there? Because you're better than your neighbors? Is it because you're a better person than they are? No, all glory to God. God gave you the desire and the power to overcome what your flesh preferred because you wanted what you believed you would get here more than you wanted what you'd get by staying at home. So you see how that works? In other words, 
the spiritual disciplines usually feel like all of you. Don't expect to have some sense of flow when practicing the spiritual disciplines. God doesn't get you out of bed in the morning, as I said, and just kind of float you over to the desk and cause your eyes to look back and forth in the words of the Bible and cause your hand mysteriously to turn the pages. No, it all feels like all of you, right? That's normal. But why don't you quit? Why is it that there are mornings you don't get anything out of the Bible? Morning after morning, why don't you just quit? Why don't you quit coming to church then? Why don't you give up prayer? You're often tempted to. You know why you don't? All glory to God. That's the power of the Holy Spirit at work. He gives you the desire. He gives you the power. But you have to discipline yourself. And just be aware that often that feels like it's all of you. That doesn't mean it's not spiritual. That doesn't mean it's not of God. Most of the time, practicing the disciplines feels like all of you. Because remember, we are a unity of body and soul. And always will be. Well, except when we sleep. <laughs> Between now and the grave and the Lord comes back. So let me finish this way. Reminding you, there's an invitation to all to experience God through these disciplines. We want to experience God. This is not just about gaining information. You want to experience God, but you know how, the, how we do that? Generally, it's through the practice of the spiritual disciplines. By faith, you believed if you would come here and if biblical worship was practiced here, if you would seek God by faith, you would experience God here. And some of you will go home today and look back and say, yes, here and there today, I experienced God. You experience God through the disciplines he has ordained. It's just like Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus wanted to experience Jesus. So he looked where Jesus would be going, and he went and got in his way. He pulled himself in the path of Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus changed. I mean, Jesus changed Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus experienced Jesus. Jesus did the work. In fact, we know he gave Zacchaeus the desire and the power to get in the way. But he pulled himself in the path. This morning, you pulled yourself into God's path when you said, I'm going to come to church. A church where the Bible is preached, where biblically sound music is sung. God reveals himself in those things. And if I will come and look for him by faith, I can expect to meet God here, to experience God in some way here. And perhaps to be transformed into Christ's likeness. That's how it happens through the disciplines. You have to engage in them. And there's an invitation open to every one of you today to engage in these spiritual disciplines according to the, the leadership of the Holy Spirit who maybe have been putting his finger on someone's conscience, maybe for some time, about picking up various disciplines, engaging more deeply in some because he wants to bless you. And this is how you'll experience him. This is how you will grow in grace. And this is how you pursue the godliness without which you will not see the Lord. Let me be very clear in closing, lest anyone think that if I, if I just practice these disciplines really hard and really consistently, God will be impressed and he'll throw open the door of heaven. Again, my friends, God is impressed only with the holiness of Jesus, with what Jesus did in his life 
in his death, living the life you should have lived but could not, dying a death for sinners like us. And the invitation is open for you to experience God, to know God, to be right with God through what he has done if you will repent and come to him. Many of you here have done that. The invitation stands open to you to experience God more fully through the disciplines in his word. You respond to how he would prompt your spirit in this regard. Let's pray.